Relevant content for our members by our members. This is TMC Connect. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Rich Swarbinski with the Mortgage Collaborative here once again with the rundown with Rob and Rich. We just started broadcasting live. See a bunch of people getting logged on. We'll give everybody a moment or so to do that. And we'll go ahead and get started with today's show. So, Rich, I understand the... uh... The baseball playoffs are underway. Ooh, sore subject. Yeah. Well, when you told me Bob was a Cubs fan, we've changed much of the line of questioning, Bob, now to the con- uh, conspiracy theory questions about that late rain delay in the uh, the 2016 World Series. So, <laughs> Well, I had the good fortune to shift allegiances to the Nationals, and we had a Great run, and I must say I haven't watched a full baseball game since the midnight massacre at the trade deadline when we got rid of anyone you've ever heard of on the Nationals. It was great to see D.C. win a championship, though. Um, that was that was a lot of fun. <clears throat> yeah, and we had the, the Capitals not long before, so we've um, been on a good little streak. Good little run. Right. Anyway. All right. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Rich Swarbinski with the Mortgage Collaborative here with the rundown with Rob and Rich, our week ending whirlwind walk through all the latest happenings in the mortgage industry. Uh, each week, as I always am, pleased to be joined, Rob Crisman. Rob, good to see you. I like to see you too. Uh, spider in the background for Halloween. Never fail to disappoint with the with this, this let, state. let me let me know if you see it move during the uh, show here. <laughs> and this week, very thrilled, special guest co-host, the president and CEO of the Mortgage Bankers Association, Bob Brokesmith. Bob, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you, Rob. Awesome. And so, <laughs> Rich, and uh, so let's go ahead and get right into it. Um, and uh, Bob. First off, thanks for joining us on next to no notice. And uh, I, you know, we've never had the chance to interact with a person. Heard nothing but just awesome things about you, and uh, really, really grateful that you're joining us this afternoon. And yeah, looking forward to getting your perspective on a lot of different things going on. As always, no, no shortage of winds of change in the mortgage industry. So um, let's go ahead and start. I'd love to get your thoughts on just the the recent appointments, the kind of key housing roles. You know better than anyone. Rob and I sit here often on Fridays and speculate and rumor monger. But uh, um, and let's start because she's from Cleveland um, with the HUD secretary, Marsha Fudge. Is that Cleveland, by the way, Rich, in the background there on the wall? It is. Yes. And you just okay. on in after nine months. Well, I. You know, what do I know? I thought I thought it might be the view out view out your window or something. <laughs> Cleveland doesn't have a memorable skyline. That's true. <clears throat> well, I'll I'll say on that score that the new name of your baseball team sounds like a life insurance company, but that's just me. <laughs> it's, oh man, I, it's a sore, it's a sore subject in Cleveland. <laughs> um, well, Marsha Fudge as HUD secretary, we're thrilled to have her in the role, and I was. I'm really happy to accompany her to Cleveland State University in June when we announced or she announced um, that HUD or FHA had changed the way it qualifies borrowers who have student debt for FHA loans, which is something MBA has been advocating for years. And as as most of your viewers or any of your viewers who do FHA loans will, will know, 
FHA had a much more punitive way of qualifying stu uh, student loan debt than other loan programs, which was the opposite of how it should be because FHA, of course, is the best way for people to get their rung on the first, uh, their foot on the first rung of the ladder of home ownership. So we were delighted that Secretary Fudge and her team at HUD uh, quickly responded to our continuing request to, to fix that. And she chose to announce it in Cleveland at, on a day, a Friday that you'll all remember was a hastily called national holiday for Juneteenth. And it was really gratifying to be with her and her team and Sharon Brown, another uh, son of Ohio, of course, um, at Cleveland State to announce that along with the Black Home Ownership uh, Initiative to get 3 million net new Black uh, homeowners um, by 2030. So we're working very closely with Secretary Fudge. She's a real champion for housing. And we're delighted to say that she will be speaking at our MBA annual conference, which starts a week from Sunday in San Diego. So uh, all of you who attend will get a chance to, to see her and hear her remarks firsthand. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, awesome that you have her there speaking. And as we were kind of talking before we went live, uh, great to see the turnout that you guys have had for MBA annual San Diego, always a popular spot on the conference circuit. And uh, yeah, it's just been so good to be seeing people networking, sitting across from tables from one another, getting lunch, getting cocktails and talking business. It, uh, it's been a while. Right. Uh, we're at 3,150 as of this morning with, uh, with dozens registering every day. So we're looking forward to a great attendance and over 100 exhibitors in the expo hall and sponsorships well beyond our, our uh, anticipation or our, our anticipated results. So we're looking forward to a great show. Excellent. Um, the FHFA director, uh, Sandra Thompson, still interim tag, I believe. Um, and she spoke virtually at our event a few weeks ago. And uh, everybody was really impressed with her. Uh, just, you know, her knowledge, her handle of the most uh, critical issues, um, her acknowledgement of our part, mortgage lenders, uh, in the very vital goals that uh, the administration wants to achieve. Um, any, uh, your thoughts on interim director Thompson and the interim tag, any, any insight as to if that will be removed or what, what's going on there? Sure. Well, first, let me say that We've known Sandra for years in her uh, roles at FHFA and have been privileged to have her speak at, at several MBA events, including our midwinter conference in Colorado a couple of years ago. And she's met with members at, at most of our um, events as well. Um, and she knows this stuff cold. Mm -hmm. She, before her many years at FHFA, she was at the FDIC in a very senior uh, bank regulatory role. So she really knows uh, our industry extremely well. She's very measured. Um, she, as you said, is the first to acknowledge the important role that lenders and servicers play in, in, um, in mortgage finance. And you might say, well, that's sort of obvious, but I'll just say that's a contrast to her predecessor and leave it at that. And we are, we are delighted that she's in the role. We're strong supporters of Sandra and her team at FHFA. And there's actually a lot of complexity around acting director of FHFA versus confirmed director. And, and by that, I mean that there is no reduction in your authority 
at FHFA by virtue of your being an acting director instead of a confirmed director. That's different from some other posts, but if, but at FHFA, you have every bit as much authority as you do as a Senate confirmed director. And you can just ask Ed DeMarco, who was acting director for, I think it was more than five years. The second thing is that even for someone who one would expect to be not very controversial politically, like Sandra Thompson, who's so clearly well-qualified, Going through the confirmation process <clears throat> during this environment in Washington is a real grind. And FHA, uh, sorry, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are such lightning rods that it would sure to be a drawn out and complex process. So having uh, acting director Thompson be acting director for a longer time, that's not a terrible result. And also, um, Frankly, she'd take a pay cut if she got confirmed just because of the vagaries of how, how confirmed directors are paid versus, versus the very most senior deputies or acting directors. So I don't know whether um, she will be acting for the long term, whether she will be nominated, which we would, of course, welcome. Um, but, but what I do know is that, like Secretary Fudge, acting director Thompson will be in San Diego. She's not only speaking to the entire convention, but she's meeting with uh, groups of our senior leaders um, on that Monday afternoon. So we're very grateful that she's making the trip and, and really enjoy working with her at FHFA. Very cool. And Ronald and I were talking about it last week. The thing that's amazing to me about her, when you see now how passionate she is about the, the goals and the initiatives that she's moving forward, to be able to be in the FHFA the last four years working for the previous director really, you know, speaks to her, I mean, commitment to the organization. And it had to be a tough climate. I mean, you were closer to it than Rob and I, but. <clears throat> yeah, and she, uh, her service at FHFA predated um, Director Calabria. So she, she worked under uh, Director DeMarco as well and Director Watt. And I think that when you have been in a circumstance like that with, with multiple different um, political appointee heads, that you are in it for the long haul, that you understand that, that things will come and go on the political side. And I think she just kept her head down and got her work done. But, um, but yeah, I'm sure, well, you can tell by some of her moves um, since being appointed as acting director have very clearly reversed or proposed to reverse some of the things that her predecessor did, including importantly, although boringly, the capital rule, which matters a lot, even though it's very complex and hard to understand. The, the two main things that we objected to in the capital rule that was recently finalized under the Calabria regime were the treatments of credit risk transfers, which made them so punitive that it made little, if any sense, for Fannie or Freddie to offload any of their credit risk. And the second thing was how often the leverage ratio was the binding constraint for capital. And, and while that's sort of a boring, complex thing, what it really means is they were just required to have too much capital, in our view. And if a firm is required to have too much capital, what is it going to do? It's going to raise the price of mortgages. So, And we thought unnecessarily, of course, we remember what happened to Fannie and Freddie. We don't want to repeat, even though they well more than repaid the taxpayer. We don't want to go through that again, of course. So we do need a strong capital rule, but we don't need one that is punitive in a way that's going to increase mortgage costs. And you saw Acting Director Thompson within her first couple months in office propose a revision to the rule that hit on those two very points. 
Um, the proposed Ginny May president, Alana McCargo, she spoke to our members uh, in her previous role last year at the virtual event we did in December. Everybody was very impressed with their uh, people inside our organization that know her pretty well and have very, very good things to, th to say. Uh, your, your thoughts on Alana and her fit for that role potentially. So that's how I used to say it too, because it has two ends, but she says Elena. So Elena um, had a, has had really interesting and diverse background in our business. She was at J.P. Morgan Chase. She was at Fannie Mae for a long time. Of course, she was at the Urban Institute and then was effectively Secretary Fudge's right hand, a senior advisor to the secretary at HUD before she got the, well, I guess she still is pending her confirmation. So very well known to us, um, a good advocate in the, in the industry and uh, someone who will play a pivotal role. A lot of your members or a lot of your viewers will care about the Ginnie Mae standards for servicers and issuers and the proposal that went out that would um, substantially increase the net worth and liquidity requirements and add a risk-based capital pillar, which we do not support. And so when, when Elena and I spoke after she was uh, nominated, that's pretty much the first thing I, I talked about. And she was up on the issue, familiar with our comment letter, which was a, a very, if I may say so myself, thoughtful letter that didn't just say, we don't like this and we don't like that. It proposed viable uh, alternatives. And I think was well-received, I know was well-received at Ginny May. So um, Elena is a, is a pragmatist, but also someone who cares very deeply about equity in housing and, um, and trying to get uh, the minority home ownership gap closed, which we care very much about too. So we look forward to working with her. She just had her hearing nomination hearing yesterday at the uh, Senate Banking Committee, and then they'll schedule a vote at some point. And then, as you know, uh, floor time in the Senate is a precious commodity. So I don't know when she would be up for final confirmation, but she is on her way. Excellent insight. Thank you, Bob. And then finally, the FHA Commissioner, Julia Gordon. So Julia is a, a member of MBA's Consumer Affairs Advisory Council and has been for several years. She is, she is very smart. I'm a, I'm a Yaley, as you know, and I'm sorry to say she's got two degrees from Harvard, but I'll forgive her for that. And she is passionate about um, small dollar lending, which I think we all should be. We, you know, some of us have have uh, had the great fortune to do very well in the mortgage business, and it's been a long time since we needed a fifty thousand dollar mortgage. But there are all kinds of people who do, and you know how hard it is to get one because of the uh, profit dynamics in our business. And so she's passionate about that, which I think is great. And she also is extremely collaborative, um, works well with lenders as well as the consumer and civil rights uh, groups. She had a Twitter problem, as you probably read about, and uh, Senator Toomey um, was not very pleased with some of the things that she, I forget, maybe retweeted. Um, seems to me that was blown out of proportion, but there was a letter um, from every Republican on the Senate Banking Committee um, asking that, I think asking that she be withdrawn, but certainly saying they weren't going to support her. I was, um, well, let's just, let's just say that she was reported out in a 12-12 tie, which means that it's got to throw, go through a discharge process. 
it clears the committee, but it's it's a different way of clearing the committee than if she had a majority. So I think her final vote in the Senate may not come for a while, but we're enthusiastic supporters of Julia's. We think she'll be great at FHA, and we know that she will communicate early and often with us should she get the post, which is which is a key um, aspect of our uh, consideration of nominees. Oh, yeah. I mean, the previous administration, like, you know, changes were just, you know, like five minutes notice uh, in, in our industry. It's like turning around a big ship, these changes, implementing them in your business. So, you know, it's great to hear that we, we do have an administration um, that is going to telegraph and give give our industry the financing side of housing uh, advance notice and, and fair warning. So, right. And, and, and I guess put another way. When you, the, the nominees you just went through, none of us at MBA said, who's that? I mean, these are all well-known well known people to us and with, with good relationships, which I think that bodes well for our members. We were we started a campaign for Rob, for FH, FHFA commissioner. Um, one, I got it up to like 170 likes on a LinkedIn post, I think, Rob. I mean, no, I still no, any regrets on, on, on that, uh, pursuing it? No. Uh... None at all. I'm I'm happy. You got the world's best. Yeah, the world. Uh, I wanted to ask Bob a question or a few questions actually. I know, Rich, you you kind of covered the the high points, and I know one of the questions that I received, Bob, and I'm going to relay this to you, and hopefully I'm not putting you on the spot, going a little off the script here, somewhat. But the you and the MBA do an amazing job in terms of advocacy and keeping up on the, you know, the, the big ticket items that are impacting us as an industry. How do you handle, or, or I should say, what, what do you, when a, when a small lender comes to you or even a broker comes to you or a small lender is maybe doing 50 million a month or hundred million a month and, and maybe they're MBA members, maybe they're not. What do you tell them in terms of things that they should watch for in, in the lending environment right now with all the changes that are going on in Washington? How, how do you tell them to view the, you know, the sweeping changes at FHFA, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Ginnie Mae, HUD, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, how do you tell them to, to keep an eye on things? How do, how do you, uh, you know, advise them in terms of, of what they should be watching for when they're maybe more concerned with some kind of small change or maybe the landlord raised their rent or maybe they're having personnel issues with processors or underwriters or loan officers, they're dealing kind of in the weeds and the minutia. What do you tell them that they should watch for on the, on the big scale? Sure. Well, first to be clear, we have hundreds of members that are small, whether they're, they're banks or credit unions or IMBs. And one of the benefits of aligning with MBA is that we do a lot of that stuff for our members. Now it doesn't mean that the member can be disengaged, but what, I guess what I mean is that we have calls every week that go through the hot topics uh, in Washington, and I'm sorry to say in the states, because sometimes we do well at tamping down bad legislation in Washington, but then it pops up in the states. And the current example is CRA for IMBs, which we can get into later if anybody's interested. But um, so 
if you if you're an MBA member, you can uh, participate in those calls or uh, or on just getting the emails, and it will we hope succinctly say, here's what's going on, here's why it matters, here's what you should do, and you can also as a small lender join your voices with so many others so that we have big influence on Capitol Hill to ensure that the needs of smaller lenders are attended to. And I think that's really critical. It's in some ways a more sympathetic case for regulators and legislators to hear that something that they're considering might hurt small lenders, but the challenge is to get the small lenders' voices heard. So that's where MBA comes in. And I think we do a good job of advocating for the best interests of all our members, regardless of size or business model, but certainly very much including the smaller guys. And one thing I would point out specifically um, to your question, Rob, is that as we go through this seemingly endless wrangling over the um, reconciliation bill, the Build Back Better bill, the soft infrastructure bill, whatever you want to call it, everybody knows that there are going to be what they call in Washington, pay-fors. You and I might call them tax increases. And one of the ones that's really critical probably affects almost every um, small lender uh, that doesn't have a bank structure. In other words, if you're not a C-corp, if you're an S-corp or a partnership, the tax changes proposed by the House Ways and Means Committee, which is the only detailed stuff that's really um, uh, made it through the legislative process at all so far, would significantly uh, limit the amount of deductions you can take under Section 199A. And again, this gets boring, but listen, because it matters to your bottom line, if it went through in its current form, along with requiring a supplemental 3.8% tax, which is fondly uh, referred to as the Obamacare tax because it's a tax on investments, but they're expanding it to partnership income, the percentage paid by small non-C-corp lenders to the federal government would be higher than C-Corps will get under either the 25 or 26.5% rate, whichever one goes through. So we are actively lobbying on that, but what we really need are the practitioners themselves to get involved with their legislators. And all you gotta do is write bob at mba.org and I'll tell you who to, who to be in touch with. We can, if you don't have relationships with your senators or representatives, we do, and we can put you in touch. And we're much more effective on your behalf if you who employ people in the district and pay taxes in the district are there with us to make the case. This is The Rundown with Rob and Rich. I'm Rich Swarbinski with the Mortgage Collaborative, joined as always by Rob Crisman. And this week by special guest, uh, President and CEO of the Mortgage Bankers Association, Bob Brokesmith. Bob, first year ever last year, the mortgage industry originated over $4 trillion in volume. Uh, coming into this year, I, the projections were 2.6, 2.7, 2.8, 2.9, on who you looked at. And it's looking like we're going to be pretty darn close to $4 trillion again this year. Crazy. Yeah, here's where I get my glasses because I have to read what uh, my economists are saying. Um, but Joel Kahn and Mike Fratantoni are now are saying that uh, 20 ended up, 2020 ended up at $4.1 trillion. Um, that has been vetted through the HUMDA filings, which we believe are the closest to the final accurate numbers. And that's just a blowout number, um, by far the biggest in the history of mortgage lending. And we have revised up to $3.74 trillion 
our 2021 forecast. And I think everybody knows the reason that the 10-year um, stayed down or rallied back down and stayed there for a nice long period um, during the second and, and third quarters. Uh, of course, now it's it's come back up. But in fact, I think I'll, I'll read you the, the quarterly expectations for refis because it's a pretty stark story. Um, for the first quarter of 21, we did three quarters of a trillion dollars in refis, 774 billion. Second quarter, 590 billion. Third quarter, we're projecting 498 billion. And in our earlier forecast, we thought by the third quarter, it would have all calmed down. And now we're saying fourth quarter will drop to 273 billion. So you add all that up, and that's um, 2.1 trillion in refis, which sounds like who's ever done that before, except we did 2.6 trillion last year. So still a really big year for refis um, because of how the 10-year and then the, the mortgage rates moved. And the other thing, of course, that, that you have seen happen is when the 10-year was really low, spreads widened out, right? So that the mortgage rates um, were delivering some of the best margins probably in most of your viewers' memory. And as the 10-year went up, of course, like we always do, we gave some of the margin back. So even though the 10-year went up, um, rates stayed really competitive. And now the 10-year has gone up enough that, of course, mortgage rates have risen too, but really, really uh, strong 2020 and 2021. Rich, was that uh, was that siren in your uh, in your going by your house? It's possible. I don't know. I couldn't. Uh, I was trying to peer out the window, but uh, I don't know. So. so, so Bob, getting back to kind of the uh, uh, the the things that you're paying attention to, and the things that that small companies are paying attention to. Once again, the the great uh, great attendance figures. For the San Diego event, I, I I think the last time, the last conference I remember in San Diego, I wanted to uh, have the Segway uh, con- concession stand because people were just, you know, running, running, you know, running. You know, it was like you'd see somebody in the hallway and there was no time to chat. It was like, you know, hey, Rob, you know, hey, Frank, you know, I got to go, got to go, that kind of thing. What, uh, I, I, once again, off the script here a little bit. You've been to a number of these conferences, uh, as have I, uh, and no, Rich. It wasn't like I started going to these in the Eisenhower administration or anything. But, but Bob, what advice do you have for people who may be on the call here who this, this might be their first national conference? What, uh, what, what tips for newbies would you say going into a conference like this? What, what should they be doing or saying or you know, reacting to? Sure. I think the thing that the, the, the mistake made most often is that people overschedule themselves. And, and as you point out rightly, Rob, if you're if one meeting's in the Hyatt, the next one's in the Marriott, while they're kind of next door, you got a convention center in between and you got to allow a little transit time. And there's nothing worse than always being late at a conference. I hate that feeling. Um, and I think that you need to go through your schedule. And if you're back to back to back, and now that it's getting close and you're thinking about logistics and you think, well, how in the world am I going to get from the Omni to the Hyatt or whatever it is in five minutes? The answer is you're not. So um, either politely decline a couple invitations 
or just throw in half an hour here and there because you will definitely see people that you want to talk to. And if and if all you can do is say, I'm already late for my next gig, I'll call you later. They're never going to call them later. I mean, that's the great thing about being in person. And um, so I guess that's my that's the biggest piece of advice. And the other thing is that um, I do think that you should rest up and stay out late. Now, you don't have to get bombed when you stay out late, but there's so many wonderful chance encounters that happen at all these receptions and things. And um, if you've, uh, you know, if you've not prepared, if you haven't been in training before the conference and you're going to bed at nine o'clock, you're sure missing out on a lot. So you, you do still need to get up and, and, and get going the next day, but let's face it, it's only three days and you really ought to um, try to take advantage of as much of it as you can and allow the time for the hallway and barroom conversations to occur. Now, I don't know, Bob, I've got to uh, disagree a little bit. Actually, Rich is probably the one who's going to disagree. Rich tells everybody who will listen that nothing good happens after nine o'clock at night, anywhere, any place, anytime. Um, well, since we're on the Pacific time zone, I think we're going to take advantage of the time difference and push that back a couple of hours. <laughs> All right, there you go. Unfortunately, for, for little old me who gets up at 4 a.m. West Coast time, Staying up past, much past nine o'clock, I miss out on all the uh, on all the fun discussions. But I but I do agree a hundred percent that the meetings are fine, and, it, and it's good to see people face to face, and and having them in the same room, I think matters a lot. But it see and it seemed like I was always the one shepherding some group, saying you know ten minutes till the hour, hey we got to go, we got to go because it's going right. to take us ten minutes to get to the next meeting. And having people glare at me because they want, you know, they want, they don't, they don't include that transportation time. But yeah. I will say that the, the the social events, which seem to seem to start around four o'clock or five o'clock, uh, and, and there are some good ones. Those are those are the things that I found uh, found most enjoyable and the most beneficial. Just the ability to, you know, I might be talking to you at a, you know, at a, at a at a gathering and then you know, somebody will come up and, and talk to us and, and you'll, you'll be able to slink away because you weren't, you didn't want to talk to me anyway. So, you know, how, you know how that works at these conferences, you know, somebody else will come up and, and talk to you and then you'll you out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so I think it is important for people to go to, go to the events. And I know that um, uh, I won't, I won't mention them by name, but, but one vendor uh, has their their social event on a boat, and at first the first thing I saw, I thought of when I saw that is, oh my gosh, they're going to have a captive audience for three hours while they're cruising around the harbor. But no, they were considerate enough to say that the boat will be docked the entire time, uh, allowing people to to go on board and go off board at, at will. So, but I do think those social events, if I had to, if I had to give advice to somebody. You're right. Allow time to get from one meeting to the other, especially at this venue. And then, uh, you know, do do go to the social events because those are those are places that you might meet somebody that uh, maybe you, you've always communicated via email or phone, but never seen them in person. But also just chance encounters and, and friends of friends who were friends of business acquaintances who come up and they just want to talk. And it's uh it's those casual conversations that oftentimes lead to some pretty valuable business contacts later on down the road. 
So I think yeah. you were spot on. Year and a half of not seeing people like at our event, I was shocked. Like, you know, you see people on video, but you don't know how short or tall they are. So that was what threw me off. Like, oh my God, that person is incredibly short or incredibly tall that threw me off. So uh, a weird dynamic of the last uh, year and a half. So with, with me, Rich, it was, boy, you really don't have much hair anymore, Rob. Um, I, I see you. Yeah. More, more than, you know, I'm, I'm potentially comfortable, but uh, it, uh, <laughs> yeah. Bob, moving on. Um, one of the things Rob and I always talk about is just the inventory issue in the industry. Um, obviously inventory levels are 40, 50% of where they were even, you know, a year or so ago when we felt like we had an inventory problem at that time. More, I think, concerning is the lack of help, I guess, on the horizon. Builders are still building, but, you know, probably not to the degree they should be just due to supply line issues. And that's not even accounting for the fact that housing probably has just been underbuilt in America for the last five or six years, even deeper than that. Um, when you look at affordable housing, um, you know, every year there's houses that are, you know, that are dilapidated, that are taken off the market and um, not a lot of, especially not a lot of affordable homes being built. And was reading a column today on Politico. It was actually linked in NBA Newslink just about, you know, the uh, infrastructure bill. They're trying to whack away at it to get something they could pass and some of the things that are getting left on the cutting floor. Um, and one of the things I saw in that column was a tax credit to home builders to build homes in affordable areas, which is something Rob and I have been screaming about for a year now. Uh, your thoughts just on the inventory issue broadly and, and more specifically the affordable housing inventory, because we have an administration that you laid out at the beginning of the call with some very passionate uh, people that are, are very you know, uh, excited to, to deliver their um, uh, the goals that they want to achieve. But I just feel like the homes aren't there to fulfill that. Yeah, it's a really intense issue and problem. And we were pleased to work uh, very closely with the Trump administration on this when uh, Secretary Carson at the time led a task force that um, had, you know, really significant input from all sides on this issue. And the trouble is that they issued their report in the final days of the Trump administration. And it was a good report, but you know how things are politically. If it came from the last administration, it's not going to get much traction. So the good news is that some good thinking has been done. The bad news is that the, the pure economics are so difficult. So how do you build and make a profit a house with the price of commodities and the price of labor and the scarcity of land and the cost of all the red tape that the local and state jurisdictions put on you to build anything, how do you build something that somebody who makes 60 or 80% of the area median income can afford? It's really hard to get those, um, those deals to pencil out. And the frustrating thing, and this is on the multifamily side of our business here at MBA, FHA lenders for multifamily have enormous backlogs with FHA to get the projects approved. Once you get an underwriter assigned, it moves along at a reasonable pace, but there are waits of six months and more to get an underwriter assigned. And this is just crazy because there are actually 
projects ready to go that would deliver affordable rental housing in that case. But, you know, that's part of the equation, too. And they're just bottled up in the process. So you're, you're definitely right about um, actually over a decade of underbuilding by builders um, coming out of the, the great financial crisis. And then the, the headwinds of restrictive zoning, very expensive costs to comply with, um, with the permitting and, and all the process that you have to go through to, to actually build something. Um, so, and, and, and then on the demand side, with interest rates so low, more and more people can afford something, but there's nothing out there. And then you add on the fact that something that I don't think we talked about five years ago, which is, um, which is big investors buying up hundreds or thousands of homes to rent them out. And certainly renting is a great uh, option for some people, but when there's a finite supply and you take more of the houses um, and put them on the rental market versus having owner occupants, it's really difficult. There's one little place that we're, we're chipping away at, which is that if Fannie or Freddie or HUD uh, have foreclosures, there are ways that you can mandate that an owner occupant get the first look. And so that's really helpful, except thankfully foreclosures are a tiny sliver of the inventory. And you can't say to a home seller in a capitalist country, you can't take the highest offer with the easiest contingency. You have to take a lower offer with an FHA mortgage contingency. I mean, that you can't mandate that, of course. So we're, we're doing a lot of things on um, trying to have more borrowers mortgage ready. But unfortunately, the supply issue is something that we can we can cheer on efforts to um, to have it abate some, but we know that at MBA we're not going to single-handedly wave a wand and and get lots more months of inventory on the market. I mean, just being closer to it than Rob and I, like we've talked about some ideas, either you know, capital gains, uh, tax exemptions for people that sell investment properties, um, you know, maybe uh, impediments some way legally for institutional investors to buy up all these properties, incentives for for people that own them to sell them, um, tax credits for home builders. But are, are these things that you feel just your opinion, like through legislatively can happen, would happen? Do you feel like if the inventory issue continues to um, stagnate as it is that that these things will bubble up and, and become legislative issues that, that Congress tackles? I think that uh, one of the things you mentioned was the treatment of capital gains on home sales. I think that the current law exempts 250000 to an individual filer or half a million to a, a joint filer of capital gains on a home sale. And what you've seen which has been, I think, a positive trend is that more people are aging in place, which is great. But when they finally decide to sell, and let's say one of the things that might push them to sell is that they're now a widow or a widower. Well, now you've only got 250000 sheltered from the capital gains tax. And if you've been in the house for 20 or 30 years with these levels of appreciation, you may be sitting on much more than that. And it's a real disincentive. So I think that that would be a way to uh, accelerate the velocity of the of the movement of real estate in a way that I think people would consider fair. I mean, I, I think back when these 
limits were set, I think people thought half a million is a lot of money. Um, but if you're not a joint filer, let's say again, you're a widower, a widower, and quarter of a million dollars, um, I forget when that tax thing took effect, but it was a long time ago. It's just not much. And, and if you add to that the fact that this reconciliation bill will almost certainly increase the capital gains tax, not we hope to the 43.8% that President Biden proposed, but probably from 20% to at least 25%. It's piling on the disincentives to sell. So I think that that one actually could get some traction. Um, I do hesitate to um, to endorse anything that would uh, infringe on the freedom of American homeowners to sell their houses to the highest bidder. I just think that's a that's a slippery slope and um, I don't know that uh, providing incentives to sell to buyer A instead of buyer B is the right way to do it. Um, what else, Bob, like behind the scenes, you know, we read the industry publications and MBA Newslink, like things behind the scenes that you guys are working on that maybe, um, you know, isn't mainstream news, but is important. Maybe something that down the pike you see is an emerging issue that uh, you guys are getting out in front of. Uh, what's going on? A little inside MBA baseball. Sure. I alluded to it before and I'll go into it a little more deeply now. There is a, a on and off drumbeat in Washington that says that uh, non-banks, which in our parlance are IMBs, um, should be subject to the Community Reinvestment Act or something like that. And I had the opportunity to, to tell Chairman Powell at the Fed, which was a really interesting meeting. We had Chairman Powell and four of the five other uh, sitting governors of the Federal Reserve in a meeting with um, nine of our CEOs, our, some commercial multifamily and some single family. And we made this point to him because he had he has said publicly that he thinks that like businesses ought to be regulated in similar ways. And what I pointed out is that an IMB's business is not really a like business to a depository's business because a depository gathers deposits and then the Community Reinvestment Act, don't forget that R stands for reinvestment, means if you gather deposits from a certain community, you should reinvest them in the community rather than just sucking the community dry of funds and then uh, lending elsewhere, right? That's the whole premise of the CRA. Well, IMBs, as you know, don't take deposits. They, they get money straight from Wall Street and take it to the communities they serve. So how do you reinvest something you never had in the first place? So uh, the first problem is it's a completely illogical construct. And the second problem is that IMBs do 72% of lending to low and moderate income families and 68% of lending to minority families. And I might have that reversed. It's one or the other. But there, so it's a solution in search of a problem. And it's completely illogical. And the trouble, as I mentioned, the, the good news is that that would take federal legislation to bring in IMBs to this, um, which is, of course, unlikely, at least at the moment, but when it's really difficult to get anything through an evenly divided Congress. But some of the states are picking up the mantle. So you've seen um, Illinois and New York and California um, pass bills like this. And now we're in, now we're in the trenches with Okay, the legislature, for instance, in Illinois, the legislature passed a bill. Let's work with the regulators to have it implemented in a way that's not going to be burdensome to people who are already doing 
a high percentage of lending to low to moderate income and minority families. So this is one that is, like I said, it's been a little bit episodic, but it's it's heating up because of action in the states and some um, rhetoric from Washington. So that's one we were always on the offensive about. And if any of you are interested, we have state by state statistics showing the IMB lending by demographic and we are happy to share them with you for use with educating your own legislators because this, if we had a 50 state hodgepodge of CRA like rules for IMBs, you can just imagine the compliance burden for what? You guys are already lending to the people that that this would encourage you to lend to. So again, it's bob at mba.org. If you're interested in uh, getting any of that stuff, I'll connect you with the right people here at MBA. And just one quick follow-up, and I see a lot of our IMB members, MBA members as well, that are that are on on the on the show today. And you know, like they keep hearing about fair lending oversight and get your company ready. And you know, I think short of CRA, uh, you know, uh, obligations, which I would agree are unfair for all the reasons you mentioned. Like, what do you think that looks and feels like to the CEO of an IMB as we get down the road a year or two? It just, you know, clearly there's going to be more of a focus on fair lending and using data and statistics to measure who lenders are lending to. Like, what would just like, your general advice for an independent mortgage banker be um, as we go into just a changed climate in, in the mortgage industry? Well, I'll start with what my advice would not be, which is duck and hope that they don't come knocking on your door. That's the absolute wrong thing to do. So you, uh, and what, what is it? An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Is that the expression? You need to, the Humda data is out. You need to compare your performance with lenders that federal regulators would consider your peers. And I would suggest both because of their expertise and because of some privilege um, uh, that it gives you that you uh, spend a little money and get an outside law firm to help you with this analysis. And then if it uncovers something that is an area for you to work on, you're sure in a lot better shape if you start to work on it and your results start improving before you get the knock on the door. If you start doing things as a result of getting the knock on the door, you're not going to get any credit for that because they're going to assume that you were going to keep doing what you were doing until the knock on the door came. So this will cost some money, but nowhere near the money or reputational problem that you would get if you didn't do it and ended up having a problem. And if you spend a little money and find out you are leading your peer group, then you can sleep better at night. So I I really strongly recommend that. Advice. So, Rich, it's time for me to rein you in. But before we do, because we run out of time, <clears throat> where and when is the Mortgage Collaborative uh, Gala Fiesta Grande in San Diego? It's Monday night, right? Yeah, ironically, it starts at nine p.m. Uh, so. <laughs> yeah, we're going up against we're going up against Pitbull this year, though. So, uh, but we went up against Carrie Underwood a couple of years ago, I think it was, uh, and, and kicked her butt. We had like five hundred people there, so we're not afraid of Pitbull. Um, but it is Monday night from nine to eleven at Lou and Mickey's, and uh, our very own 
below. Tom Gallucci dropped the link in uh, the chat for anybody that wants to register. It will be a good time as always. We went to the late night event. You know, it's like let pe- the, there's so much competition in that early space and people want to go do dinners. We're like, we're going to do the later event. It's been a great move for us. So Rich, my invitation uh, must have been lost in the mail. Your, your, oh, your invitation didn't get, uh, well, now we have your email address. Did you, Bob, Bob at MBA, is that like, did, was that available, that email address? Like when a, a, a star athlete gets traded and somebody else has their number, did you have to like negotiate to get that uh, email address or they did? No, I, I got to tell you, this is sort of a funny story. Our communications guys came to me and said, well, you know, you really ought to have Bob at MBA.org. And I said, well, my last name's sort of hard to spell. Why don't we have R. Brooksman at MBA.org so more of this stuff doesn't go through? <laughs> and they convinced me that was a dumb, dumb way to operate. So I've been Bob at MBA.org since day one. <laughs> well, you do genuinely encourage people to reach out to you directly, which I think is awesome. It's the president's CEO, MBA, and uh, all joking aside, uh, every time we talked about he says give out my email i want people to contact me directly so that is very very noble and awesome so and that goes for all our staff by the way there's nothing they like better you know because i you know i was a member of mba i would think oh i don't want to bother you know bill kilmer steve o'connor whoever with this guess what the highlight of their day is to hear from members whether it's a call or an email or text or whatever you want so we really do encourage that and and they love to um they love to know what's on the mind of the members and, and to jump in and try to help. Awesome. Rob, any final questions, uh, parting shots for Bob before we uh, fade off into the weekend here? No, I do agree with his, uh, with his assessment. Um, I know, I know Stephen Milner is on here and, and Bob, I wrote to Stephen actually this morning uh, because I think he's very in touch with the, this, this pseudo CRA Yes, movement that's out there. And so I'm, I was looking for some information from him because I think it is a, uh, I mean, I think you summed it up very, very well. So I appreciate that. So no, uh, no parting shots, Rich, other than I uh, hope, I, I hope I see everybody in a week and a half at, at Lou and Mickey's, which is, I've eaten there a number of times over the years. It's, it's a fun place, fun venue. So appreciate you putting that on Bob. I'm sure you probably have uh, several, several invitations already in your inbox. Uh, to the event, but Rich, I'll try to take a nap to, uh, yeah. to hit that nine o'clock mark. Well, the trouble is my wife will be with me. So I might have to go to bed a little earlier than I would otherwise, but that's a good governor on me. Cause I got to speak in the morning. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, I'm actually staying with my son, uh, Robbie, who lives about 10 miles North sleeping on an air mattress on his floor. So I'll be having to turn in early just, uh, just to get, just to get up the coast a little bit. I wonder you're up at four if you're on an air mattress. <laughs> <laughs> Just dang, dang commentary I send out. I know it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Bob, thanks again. Really enjoyed the conversation. The outstanding insight was uh, great to hear uh, your perspective on all the very, very critical issues going on right now in housing and mortgage industry and to our members and your members. And uh, really appreciate having you on. Yes. Enjoy it, guys. We'll see you in San Diego. And Rob, as always, uh, good seeing you. And yeah, looking forward to seeing many of you in San Diego. And uh, we will be back next week, same place, same time, 3 p.m. Eastern, The Rundown with Robin Rich. Until then, have a great weekend, everyone. Take care. For more information about how you can get involved with TMC Connect and witness the power of the network firsthand, please visit us at mortgagecollaborative.com.